Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Jodelle Concepcion had been working as a registered nurse in long-term care for almost two decades. And she remembers the last time things seemed this frightening. It was 2003. That was when a different coronavirus was sweeping the world, causing severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS for short. During SARS time, there's a lot of nurses. My colleague got sick. Even my sister-in-law, she got sick. You have that fear. Why am I going to have this stress again? We don't know. So when she started feeling feverish in early April, Jodell went out to get tested right away. My first symptoms started on a Saturday, which is April 4. I went right away to Scarborough Grace to get tested. And then when I came back home, I have a little bit of OCD, for, even from SARS time. So when, when I came home, I took a shower because I thought the fever will just subside. But the fever didn't subside. Instead, 
the symptoms started to get more intense. I was coughing, I was vomiting. When my husband gave me the food, like I don't have an appetite, I don't smell it, and I don't taste it. For a few days, Judell stayed at home, trying to get rest and stay hydrated. But by April 8th, she was having trouble breathing. My airways block, I can't breathe. You want to raise your chest or trying to catch the air, but you can't. That's how I feel. She asked her son to drive her to Scarborough Grace Hospital. And when they got to the emergency room, a man was outside screening people and asking them questions. He was saying, I have to screen you. I said, no, don't screen me. I'm, I feel like I'm going to die. I can't breathe. The man tried to determine whether she should come wait in the emergency room. And I can tell my son and my husband are crying, yelling at them, don't come near me, don't come near me. So I said to one of the staff, I said, I'm going to pass out. Please help me. I have COVID. I'm on RNA working long-term care. That's all I said. And then they took me right away. They put her on oxygen. But then they realized she was developing congestive heart failure. So they gave her injections, antibiotics, anti-clotting agents. Luckily, Jodell had gotten there in time. She didn't die. She's now out of the hospital and fully recovered. But a lot of people haven't been so lucky. Since the beginning of the pandemic, thousands of long-term care workers have come down with COVID-19. And 16 of them have died. I'm Arshi Mann, and from Canadaland, this is Commons. In stories about long-term care, the workers are often left out of the picture. It's the nurses, the personal support workers, and so many others in these facilities that really have been on the front line of this pandemic. But their work isn't viewed as sexy or captivating. After all, people don't make TV shows or movies about long-term care like they do with hospitals. And compared to their counterparts in emergency rooms and critical care units, their frontline labor is often devalued. And they're often what we refer to as the three Ds. So jobs that are dirty, difficult, and especially during times of a health pandemic, highly dangerous. My name is Naomi Lightman, and I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Calgary. My research focuses on the intersection between gender, migration, race, and care work. According to her research, it's clear that these jobs, especially personal support workers who provide a big chunk of the day-to-day care, are occupied by specific kinds of people. So this is overwhelmingly a female workforce, and it's very much racialized. When we talk just broadly about racialized women, it doesn't actually capture it. It's really specifically two groups that we're talking about. We're talking about Black women and Filipino women who are, in the case of Black women, over two times as likely as white women to be working in these jobs, and with Filipino women, over three times as likely. And people working in these types of positions are also much more likely to be recent immigrants. So when we look at personal support workers or people working specifically in long-term care institutions, these are in fact among the most precarious and the, the lowest wage workers, especially in private institutions. When we compare them to just the average worker, and we're still controlling for factors like their education and their family structure, so holding these factors constant, we see that there is a 40% wage penalty for low-skill care work. Naomi Lightman says that this is because caring for people, 
has historically been viewed as quote-unquote women's work. And I think as this kind of work has entered the paid labor force, we've continued to view it through a lens of work that doesn't really matter or doesn't hold the same value to other types of paid work. So we rely on women who are coming from the global south to do this work that we don't want to do. And we continue to view it as labor that doesn't hold the same value as other kinds of work. Lisa Burke is a personal support worker at People Care Oak Crossing, a long-term care facility in London, Ontario. Here's what a typical day looks like for her. I work straight day shifts. I work 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. When we get to our unit, we have to come a few minutes early to get a report. There's usually three to four staff to 32 residents. We get report. They tell us if there's anybody who's been hospitalized, any changes, any med changes, any behaviors, any falls, anything like that. We have two hours to get the 32 residents up, dressed, bathed, hairbrushed teeth in, and into the dining room to be fed for breakfast. Some of these residents are aggressive. Some of the residents are fairly independent, and we just have to help with small things like picking up their clothes. Some people need total care where they have to be dressed, rolled, changed, use a mechanical lift. If we have to use a mechanical lift, there has to be a minimum of two people to then get that person up and into their wheelchair. We're supposed to chart at the same time as getting them ready, which is near impossible. And then we have an hour to feed them breakfast. Most times we don't get into the dining room exactly when we're supposed to. We're usually late because there's just so much care to be done and we don't have enough people to do it. And then... We have to feed them. We're only supposed to feed two people at a time. So a lot of people have to wait to get their meal because we can only feed two people at a time. After breakfast, we would have to take them back to their rooms if we can get a break in. And then you would start toileting residents, helping taking them to activities, changing them. Some people lay down for a nap, finish some baths. And then you would get people back up, toilet people, and then we'd go for lunch and feed them lunch, the same thing. And then we have like an hour to get people out of the dining room and then back to the rooms, toilet them, change them, lay them down for a nap if they need to have a nap and try to chart and get everything done at the same time. Lisa Burke says that her home is always understaffed. And when they ask for more help, management tells them that they just don't have enough funding. We don't have enough staff at all to give any of the residents the type of care they need and deserve. Zaid Noor-Samar is a labor reporter who's been covering long-term care workers. And he says that even as the care needs of long-term residents have been growing, staff aren't getting more of the resources they need. Residents coming into long-term care now have increasingly complex needs and they require a higher level of care, while at the same time, the staffing ratios have not kept up. They haven't been increased in accordance with the acuity of patients. So that's a big factor. And what that means is that staff are constantly rushing. They are running around. They don't have the time to spend with residents. 
people think that we get paid this giant amount of money and that we're lazy because we're complaining that we don't have enough time or the manpower to do the work. I don't think they know how physically, mentally, emotionally draining the job actually is. Joanna Bulatow agrees. She's a registered practical nurse at Villa Leonardo Gambin, the same facility that Jodel Concepcion works at. A lot of our staff there constantly like overwork themselves or like they really give their all when they're providing like care to our residents and it gets very very tiring like especially during now it does get exhausting it's not that we don't want to provide care it's just that we become so drained because we want to help and long-term care workers form close personal bonds with the people they take care of they think of residents as their family members and they really feel they they want to provide the best care that they can. In fact, one of the workers that I spoke with who used to be in home care, I think now she works in long-term care, she said, mentally, it's a very draining job. You get attached to your client and then you get frustrated because you know they need more care, but they aren't getting it. Most of us PSWs are the type that if the client's having a bad day, It's hard not to take that with you. And she said after years and years of not being able to provide that care, she was burned out and she quit. She said, I sat in my car and I started crying and I couldn't stop. And that's the day she quit. All of the workers we spoke to said the same thing. The people they care for become like family to them. Even when we have a person who becomes palliative or passes away, a part of us goes with them too. Like a lot of the time we're in the room with them, we're with the family, we're crying with the family. Or even if they're alone, we're with them, holding them as they take their last breath. Like it's it's like losing a part of your family. I think people don't really realize that like when you're with the same residents, they kind of become like a part of you. Like they become like your your family. That's that's who we're taking care of. We're taking care of them just like we would our grandparents. Jodel Concepcion, who you heard from at the top of the show, came to Canada from the Philippines in 1995. She first worked as a nanny and then took some courses and became a registered nurse. Soon, she was working in long-term care. And since 2004, she's been working at Villa Leonardo Gambin, a long-term care home in Woodbridge, Ontario. The home was built for the nearby Italian community, so in order to be able to care for her residents, Jodel learned as much Italian as she could. So you have to encourage them and say, Buongiorno, andiamo gabinetto, and adesso um, uh, parlato la familia. Villa Leonardo Gambin is technically a non-profit home, but it's run by Siena, one of the largest for-profit long-term care providers. The home would have pandemic preparedness training every year, and Joe Dell was one of the people tasked with ensuring that people's masks fit properly. By early March of this year, Joe Dell was getting more and more worried about COVID-19. She'd had family members who had gotten SARS, and she knew how scary things could get. And she says that early on, it became clear that the staff weren't going to get the proper personal protective equipment. By mid-March, the doctor used to come do rounds refused to enter the building. They don't do rounds in the building because they know that the administrator is not giving him PPE. 
Dr. Pugin will only do OTN with me using my cell phone to see his patients from the middle of March or almost third week of March. By the weekend of March 27th, some of the residents on Jodell's floor started coming down with COVID-19 symptoms like fevers and coughs. And the staff started to ask management for masks. When are we giving us masks? This resident is coughing. We don't have enough masks. We're talking about surgical masks, okay? She says, I gave you guys. If you finish it, that's your problem. That's always her comment. Everybody knew that. And because Jodell was the union steward, staff started to come to her, saying they were short on PPE. But Jodell says that when she took those concerns to management, they were just brushed off. Why? Did I told you to talk to me? I told her to talk to me. Why is she telling you? I said, no, she's telling me now because I'm the union steward. It's my responsibility to follow up. So then she says, well, the public health didn't say that you have to wear masks. A spokesperson for Siena denied that staff at Villa Leonardo Gambin were ever told not to wear PPE, especially when they were supporting residents displaying respiratory flu-like symptoms. Over the next few days, a number of residents started to experience upper respiratory issues, a telltale COVID-19 symptom. And some staff, they put on their own, they, from their home, they will get mad at you. Jodell says that the message from management was clear. Because Public Health Ontario had yet to mandate it, no one had to wear a mask. And so they weren't going to be provided any. Joanna Bulatau says that it was very difficult for staff members to get PPE. I don't think that they were prepared for that to spread to other floors. Because when it did, it didn't really feel like that we had as much supplies. And it felt like we were like pulling teeth to get like the supplies because we were running low in the home. The staff continued to work in close proximity to each other and to provide bedside care. And all the while, residents were moving around the facility. They're in the rooms, but they come out, they're wondering, what are you going to do, tie them on their beds? You're going to lose your job. On March 28th, Jodell says that managers asked her to test a number of residents for COVID-19, even though it wasn't her job. She wasn't given the proper PPE, but she did it anyways. The next day, another nurse came down with a fever, and within a week, Jodell came down with one too. That same day, she heard that one of the residents she had tested was now positive. Within another week, Jodell Concepcion was in the emergency room at Scarborough Grace Hospital, convinced that she was going to die. I have a lot of diarrhea, vomiting. And so my potassium is low, my heart arrhythmia acted up, I developed congestive heart failure, I had COVID-19 pneumonia. Jodell prayed to God that she would survive and be able to spend time with her family. That I'm not a perfect human being, just giving me another chance to live. I still want to see my son get married and have grandkids. And, you know, um, he has to give me another chance to live again. But, you know, Archie, I was... I was just praying. I, I just prayed. And I said, God, and you're making me cry again. It's just so sad. But during that time, she couldn't help but feel betrayed. She had thought that her managers were her friends, that they looked out for her. I worked, I worked with these managers for many years, and I'm, I'm, I'm not nobody to them. And then they just to give me the N95, they said there's no supply. While she was sitting in that hospital bed recovering, Jodell was amazed by what she saw around her, 
The protocols, the protections in the hospital were nothing like in long-term care. When I was in Scarborough Grace, they disinfect. They come to my room three times, the full shift, the whole day, to take the garbage, do proper disinfection. They're wearing double masks, one N95 and the surgical mask under face shield and double gowns and three pairs of gloves. In long-term care, you share everything. They don't do proper disinfection from the beginning before the COVID. How about now? At least 12 residents of Villa Leonardo Gambin have died of COVID-19. And according to Jordel, 31 employees, including herself, have been infected with the coronavirus. She says that the last staff member who got sick was on May 17th, a month and a half after the outbreak began. We reached out to Sienna for comment about all of this. And in an emailed statement, they said that throughout the pandemic, their highest priority has been to ensure the safety of their team members and residents. They say that they ensured ample supplies of PPE were available, including N95 masks, and that charged nurses have access to the residents' storage room to ensure that team members can acquire new PPE at all times. According to Sienna, team members were encouraged to wear PPE provided by the home instead of their own to ensure it met the appropriate standard. And they thank their team members for their heroic work and their ongoing dedication throughout the pandemic. As the COVID-19 outbreak was sweeping through the long-term care facility where she worked, Joanna Bulatow was scared. It was horrible. <laughs> I mean, it's like a whole internal battle with yourself because it's like you want to go into work, you want to help your staff, you want to help your residents, like you want to be there and, and do your job, like you want to actually help them. But obviously, at the back of your mind, you're always thinking like, oh my God, what if I get sick? Like, what if I bring this home to my family? What if I, you know, what if, I, what if I'm a carrier? And like so many of her colleagues, she became infected and had to stop coming into work. As a nurse, I want to be helping. I want to be there. I want to give as much as I can during like these difficult times. And knowing that I can't, and knowing that as much as I want to, I can't do anything about it. It's really frustrating and it really takes a toll on like mental health and it's just the worst feeling ever. But what got to her most was that so many of the people she was charged with caring for are now dead. She was stationed on the floor that lost the most residents. It was honestly the hardest thing. When I found out that like residents were starting to pass on that unit, it was either I was breaking down on, on the phone when someone was telling me or I was trying to like hold it together. And it's just because you build that relationship with them, you remember all of the memories that you have with them. And then to just think that like, oh, well, that's all you have now are just memories. It's very hard, very hard. Lisa Burke was lucky enough to not become infected with the coronavirus. But she is frustrated by the state of long-term care and she thinks enough is enough. We've been, us like in the union have been yelling like, we need more help, we need more staff, we need more of this, like you guys need to come in and regulate more things. And I just think it's, it's very, very sad that a pandemic has to 
show the world what we've been shouting for many, many years now. We are the backbone of the healthcare system. And a lot of people just don't see the hard work and the dedication of long-term care employees. That's your episode of Commons for the week. If you want to support us, click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode relied on work done by Naomi Lightman, Zaid Nursamar, Tamara Daly, Pat Armstrong, and Nora Loretto. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at commonspod. You can also email me, arshi at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish with additional production by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt, and our music is by Nathan Burley.